A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Previously on British politics. That's what we're going to be talking about this week, everything we missed over the Christmas break and our predictions for 2018. It's time for a cabinet battle. It's not time for a cabinet battle, Stephen. Sorry, I, I led you astray there. It's time, however, to talk about all the things that we missed over the Christmas break. Let's not use words like all. Um, I think it's just you know, some, a few, a handful. But first, why don't you, why don't you tell the listeners missed. about what you did for Christmas? What I did for Christmas? Yeah. Let's give it that kind of Instagram feel to the podcast. So I went to my in-laws for Christmas, um, which was nice. It was, you know, it was good. I didn't have to... Do they listen to the podcast? Is that They what? don't listen to the podcast. So no. you can say anything you like about them. I can. Unfortunately, my in-laws aren't particularly good for her hashtag content. You know, they're not particularly annoying. They don't have any particularly funny foibles I can make fun of. I don't really feel I can draw a broader lesson from. I mean, except I am slightly more sympathetic to, like, the badger cull as a result. Because they used to be dairy farmers. By a badger. Oh, right, okay. I think people maybe don't realise how big badgers are. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely the animals of Farthing Wood has done an awful lot for the uh, rep of badgers. In, in reality, I've just increasingly of the of the view that seeing as there is no evidence, unless you are already very, very sick and very, very old or very, very sick and very, very young, you can't actually catch bovine, bovine TB from milk. You, you really can't, right? Like, it's it's really not a thing. Maybe we should just, like, let the badgers, like, do what they do let them infect the cows, and then, you know, crazy idea, just drink the then perfectly safe to drink milk at the end of the process. Yeah. um, If you like that, if you like TB-riddled milk, you'll love what will happen after Brexit. See how I did there? Yeah, Yeah, that was a good segue. segue. Because, uh, yeah, so one of my things that I think is fascinating about 2018, uh, so one of the the FT did a roundup where they asked people to make their (coughs) predictions, and then they tossed up how many they got right at the end of the year. And I think the situation in North Korea is a really interesting one. Like, you, I remember you were saying that you were happy at the end of 2017 that you weren't a pile of ashes and vapour. Mm-hmm. That might not be something that you can say at the end of 2018. It's true. But here's the thing. What a, deli- what a dilemma for Theresa May, right? Action in North Korea would be. That was not the segue I was expecting from the potential of global annihilation, TBH. Um, <laughs> okay, I went a bit parochial with that. Yeah. But what does it mean for the yeah, Tory party? That was really like the most like <laughs> local news. Like, can we put an angle here? You know, like, <laughs> a Westminster angle on them. Um, yeah, it was a bit kind of Sidcup destroyed in nuclear fireball. So I think it is a dilemma for Theresa May, but it's only a di- dilemma for Theresa May because people in Downing Street and around May and May herself, I think, they've got this kind of sunk cost nonsense of, you know, you know the Liberals told us we shouldn't bother putting our arm around Trump, and we did. 
and therefore it's going to be worth it. And so, no, that... He's already forgotten that for a start, right? Yeah, and one of the reasons why I am more optimistic about the Trump presidency than I was this time last year is I think a couple of things have become clear, some of which we kind of knew from the campaign anyway, right? We knew from the campaign that Trump was um, someone who made promises that he didn't believe and sort of then discarded them. What we didn't know was the extent to which that was part of a kind of competent, you know, like shyster thing, or if Trump was as shambolic as he appeared. It's now open and shut that Trump is a calamitous president, not just for all of the ideological things I don't agree with him, but he is, by any measure, the least successful US president ever to have been in power when his party holds the Supreme Court, the Senate, uh, and the House of Representatives. Yeah. All of which kind of means... And Owen, we also know that he takes offence at weird things and he, he cannot be trusted, right? He likes when people are nice about him. He likes when people praise him. He ne- if you make him feel important, then you can get him to do things. Yeah. He innately leans towards dictators because he sees them as being strong, people who can get things done. And right? he likes the and he takes on the opinions of whoever he last spoke to. Um, Usually Fox News. Yeah, which... All of which, actually, uh, if you are Theresa May, makes the political calculation a lot easier because she cannot ever be the last person he spoke to unless she literally moves to the White House. Um, So she is not going to get a reliable or useful uh, support for a trade deal, even if Trump's popularity, and it's a very formidable midterm map for the Democrats, right? So Trump could still be historically unpopular, say it, 40%, 42%, and he might not be so unpopular that the Democrats are able to take control of Congress just because the 2018 midterms map is so unpleasant for them anyway, then then he really does have to be an epic level drag. But if, if that happens, he's still not going to be competent enough to unlock this great trade deal, let alone be reliable enough for this, oh, I've secured a commitment to NATO, I've secured a commitment to, you know, I mean, you know, when her, with her visit when, and the hand-holding, they thought they'd secured a couple of things. Commitment to NATO, he's still chuntering on about that and implying that maybe he's not that into it after all. Commitment to free trade, well, again, that kind of speaks for itself. So actually, for Theresa May, she might as well just take the slight uptick in her own approval ratings domestically of going... Plucky little Britain, we don't like the United States, right? Actually, I think the mistake that a lot of, not just people on the right, but I think a lot of people are making with this, oh, you know, you've got to be realistic about the political challenges ahead, is that they think that they the level of uncomfortable that makes them gets a measurable level of concessions or policy outcomes from the Trump White House. We now know it doesn't. So actually, the North Korea stuff, is, is it's all easy for Theresa May, right? It's actually, it's all upside. It's all an opportunity to, like, you know, make liberal voters in Britain... Do love, actually. Yeah. This has now become not, a very dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, David like... David Beckham's left foot, etc. Yeah, like, there, there, there is, like, it's... It, I mean, again, it's you know part of the hilarious mystery of Theresa May is like how low can you turn the difficulty setting down before she stops tripping over her her own feet. So that was a really interesting thing. They seem to Downing Street seemed to have briefed that they were thinking about not including students in the in the immigration numbers, and then have gone, oh, actually, we we might do after all. And then they sort of seem to brief that. Oh, we won't. We're not going to. We're going to overturn our policy of a free vote on fox hunting, and and then they seem to have um, now then sort of gone. Oh, I don't know when that's going to happen. At some point, they seem to sort of be edging towards sensible concessions, and then not actually kind of finally delivering on them at the same time as doing. Let's be honest, completely woo woo things like 
giving into the Sun's campaign on bringing back blue passports, right? Which maybe shores up your vote among people who are probably not going to defect to Jeremy Corbyn anyway. So you've, what have you done there? You've kind of played into a, a culture war, but everyone else has noticed your culture war. Like the other side can read that those headlines too. Ditto the Toby Young thing, right? So I think to take the line of the passports thing first, if you're the Labour Party, maybe there was like, maybe there is some upside to going, yeah, blue passports, why not? You know, we could have those if we stayed in anyway. But, you know, if they make you happy, why not? You know, and, and maybe that's useful to the Labour Party because the pain point electorally for Labour in terms of the voters they, if they had done better with, they'd be in office. And the pain point for the Tories, if the, the voters, if they'd done better and they would be both in office and be able to, you know, do anything, are the exact reverse, right? So I can, I, I can't, yeah, I can't see the value to the Conservative Party of doing something that is free doesn't really mean anything but irritates the wrong set of voters for you like just don't actively annoy remainers right because although i think as an electoral calculation going brexit is going to hurt a chunk of the conservative coalition uh, that existed pre the 23rd of june so the conservative party needs to get some votes from somewhere yeah sure that makes sense however it didn't work so they probably needed a new approach there's a but at the end of this though which is there's an argument which is gaining uh, credence in large chunks of the conservative party including parts which don't like the policy implications of this which is that actually because brexit is not going to go well for the conservative coalition and it's going to annoy social liberals you basically need to accept if you're the Conservative Party that Battersea is gone, Kensington is gone, Canterbury. Hastings is gone. Yeah, so Hastings will go next time, Putney will go next time. But if you can hold on to Mansfield, gain Weaver Vale, Newcastle under Lyme, Ashfield. Ashfield. So there's Midlands and <coughs> Midlands yeah, slash Bishop Northern. Auckland, uh, Darlington. So yeah, that kind of Midlands through into kind of Yorkshire Corridor, which. It is the one place, and it is not. It's not immediately clear why Labour did less well in those parts of the country than elsewhere. We don't have enough data yet, but there is a an argument to be made from a Conservative perspective. Uh, then they should effectively just go right. We're just going to maximise that vote, and that allows us in twenty twenty two to cling on with three hundred slightly different 320 odd seats than they have now but with 320 odd seats and, and you have another uh, coalition arrangement of but some of course they will form. have a problem because the new centrist party which will arise in 2018 will no doubt sweep a lot of those seats i can't believe why you're being so defeatist and using the singular for this new <laughs> new centrist parties um in fact i'm actually at the moment exciting trailer drawing up a quiz oh, i thought you were saying an, forming your own centrist oh, party i was like an, come on Stephen, this is just peer yeah, pressure should, at this point we should get on the like seriously bandwagon and do a podcast quiz one of the quiz questions uh, mm -hmm. is going to be about new centrist parties okay so hang on I, I, I the democrats that was one yeah I can't remember what was the one about. Uh, Jolly on Warns one was about a circle, a harvest. What am I saying? I'm thinking of. It's odd because these are all stupid, and yet <laughs> they aren't as stupid as Jolly on Warns title what, what was. What was the name of it? Sorry. Spring. Spring. No, 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 it's actually worse. Spring the party. That's I mean, why. not just spring, right? Calling your party spring itself naff, right? And then you just add an extraneous word, the. It's like crash the party, though, isn't it? Or okay, don't you think it's kind of. Anyway, it just it, it sort of feels like one of those New York Times headlines. So, okay, so that's two. Surely someone must have called themselves like the Sensibles or something like that. 
No, because I think the problem with with all of your names is it, it's they're slightly too knowing, and crucially, the thing that all of these parties have in common is they're not knowing. I mean, so the, the thing is, right? Is I am. I'm really not unsympathetic to the fact that, you know, I think Brexit Renewal. Is, Surely uh, one of them is called <clears throat> Renewal. I think several of them have been called <laughs> Renewal. I'm not indifferent to the fact that Brexit is a slow motion disaster and it would be very much better for the country if it didn't happen. However... But those forces are very slow moving, right? So we talk yeah. about UKIP and the amazing success of UKIP now collapsed like a pancake. But UKIP was founded in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, Alan's scared. So, I mean, UKIP was hanging around a long time like a slightly eggy fart in the you know, corridors of Brussels before it coalesced under Nigel Farage, in my opinion, as with lots of far-right movements used as an outrider by the mainstream right to do its bidding. Um, you know, that's the problem with it. You know, there might very well be a, a centrist party in 10 years' time, but I think, think this year seems quite hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I also think there are parts of uh, the Labour leader's office uh, who are very worried about the... Uh, electoral damage a new centrist pro-European party would do to them, which is one of the reasons why the leader's office's outriders are doing a lot of preemptive trashing of this idea. Now, I'm going to make a very confident prediction because I'm certain in the knowledge that this confident prediction will not be tested, which is that if a new centrist party were to emerge in the next four years, the party it would harm would be the Conservatives. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I just think if you actually look at the... The like, if you if you're a if you're a, you a liberal uh, yeah if you're a yeah if you're a left liberal remainer right, regardless of the doubts you have about the Labour Party, you've kind of already crossed that bridge and you know how first past the post works and you kind of know that you're locked into it. Plus, the, there's so the, much of the cultural, the kind of progressive culturalist that that remainers come to be associated with, right? Yeah. And actually, your value, you know, this. That question they always ask in polling about, you know, which politician best represents your values, that's probably much more likely that that's going to be something that even a Corbyn-led party, even if you're relatively centrist or whatever you want to call it, than uh, Theresa May or Boris Johnson or... Okay, let's do... Let's do... Will there be a a Tory leadership election this year? No. Good. Strong. Um, Yeah, what do you think? Stable. My feeling about it is, is I think when the Tory leadership election comes, it will be incredibly swift. Like it will be what it'll be Friday, you know, Theresa May looks fine. Monday morning, the axe has, has fallen. I just think that it's, it, it will be completely sustainable right up until the moment that she's not. And uh, you know, do you know? But, but she, I mean, the thing is, I talking about things we missed over the Christmas break. New Year's honours this, right? It's a been it's a great time for Graham Brady, chair of the nineteen twenty two committee, who is in charge of keeping the letters of no confidence in the uh, the Tory leader. He got a, a knighthood in that. I also suspect that was a bit of a sorry, Graham, you're not getting grammar schools. I know you've been on about them for years, but oh that policy is dead as a doo-doo. I know this is like the incredibly young fogeyish thing to say and mm-hmm. I'm gonna start harumphing. Um but <sighs> I think if you're going to have an honest system... Wow, you literally, you literally did harumph. I, yeah. It should be for science and culture. If you're going to have it for you know, science, culture, maybe business, right? And if, but really, if it's for business, you should be for people who've like, you know, founded some kind of new firm, right? Well, if the businesses gonna... that have done good, right? So the Timpson family, for example, do a lot of work with ex-offenders trying yeah. to get them jobs, right? Um, Not just for you made a lot of money. Because um, that's sort of its own reward, really. Yeah. See Philip Green for but more But if on it's this. going to include politics, which, you know, yeah, then it really, you know, really you, you ought to have had to at least become leader of your party. You know, ideally actually, you know, held, you know, a, a, a major office. I mean, 
it's not something you just get for turning up at the office every day. You know, like no shade to Graham Brady. Like he's good at politics, right? He's successfully become chair of the. No, oh, but I always feel like about Alan Brady. Duncan again. But no yeah, shade just, to him, but it, you know, he was he performed very well in the job. It's like it's like I mean Ed no Davey. You know, I, I have a fair amount of time for him. I think he was actually quite a good Secretary of State, but you know. I, I shouldn't get a knighthood for for successfully filing a column every week. Like these people shouldn't get a knight a knighthood for. I mean, maybe I should. I yeah, was like, would that make you better at filing your? No, um, no, I'm no, I just you. I'm holding out for a peerage anyway. I just think it is a bit. That's a bit of a piss take, really, isn't it? Like just. I think if you've worked as a nurse in the NHS for fifty years and you've been cleaning up people's sick off the floor, making sure you know, on underpaid for a job which involves you know giving out medications that could kill people, then probably Sir Edward Davy does stick in the craw ever so slightly. Yeah, to quote that great game Mass Effect, we don't give people medals for doing their job. Would like, you take a peerage though? Of course, three hundred and fifty quid, like to like sign on, and also you know. It would be pretty cool to be a peer. Because let's face it, we're never going to get rid of it. Like, yes, there are lots of problems with it. Yes, it's terrible. But we're never actually going to get rid of the House of Lords, right? So why, you know, we're just going to have this ridiculous antiquated gravy train. And I think I should be on it. Also, I mean, yeah, I do also genuinely think in terms of the, because I'm not sure if this will uh, be a subject in next week's podcast or the next one, but the expectation isn't Jeremy Corbyn is going to end his original opposition to mm. appointing people to the House of Lords. But I think that's a good tactical decision in the sense that the way that that is being used is, to, you know, the, basically the Conservatives have been grumpy for quite a long time that because of the abolition of hereditary peers, they don't have an automatic majority in the upper house. They feel very annoyed about, you know, the fact that... Some of their measures that were passed in the Commons have been pinged back and forth by the Parliament Bill. And if they want to stuff the House of Lords with their appointees, I just think it's a bit like the argument they had about whether or not Barack Obama should take all that campaign money that he'd sort of said shouldn't be in politics. And his argument was like, but if it's there, I'm going to use it, yeah, even I mean, though if... I'm against it. And I think if you're Jeremy Corbyn, I think it's totally legitimate to go, I actually don't think we should treat the House of Lords like this. But given that we do, I'm not going to be massively disadvantaged by refusing to play the game. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely the correct uh, decision to... Well, it's just it is silly to play by the rules of a rubbish game of a, of a rub yeah of a game you don't set. I mean, it's a bit like again, oh something else we missed over the well, while we were away. Um, the Conservatives having a kind of I'll scream and scream until I'm sick thing about boundaries. Where, <laughs> that was um, amazing. Jeremy Corbyn accused of playing politics over boundaries. It's like oh, playing politics with boundaries. At least when it's like something that involves people, you know, dying, then you can kind of go like when they do in America over gun crime. Oh, you're playing politics with gun crime, and you're like, yeah, because it's a political issue. But that. That was amazing. Playing politics with the boundary reform. I mean, also, right? There are there are a couple of there are there are so many stupid things about the Conservatives and, and boundary reform, but I will try and keep it brief. One, it's this weird appendix from the last failed era of Conservative politics that engagingly appears to be making it into the next failed era of Conservative politics, which. You know, ultimately, boundaries do not make anywhere near as big a difference because our, under our system, the boundaries are, are fairly drawn. You can slightly change the, the metric of how that fair drawing is in ways that I would say are slightly less fair. So if you make um, it registered voters rather than members of population, that does slightly disadvantage the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. But we are talking about literally less than half of a percent. We are talking about a difference uh, between a House of Commons in which the Conservatives are 10 short and need a deal from the DUP and one in which they are too short and need a deal from the DUP, right? But, but aren't they related to... That's related to my current bugbear, which is it was an advisory referendum, people. 
And I just think, okay, I mean, yes, you are technically correct, but trying to get that argument to stick in any way, or it's one of those things, it's it's what I call a a therapeutic argument, right? It's something that you say to make you feel better rather than to actually convince anyone or achieve any actual change. Unfortunately, like I am sympathetic to that. They are technically correct, those people, as other people who are technically correct about boundary changes favouring one party or the other. Great, but it's a way of kind of not going, actually, how am I going to win over another full percentage of point of the country. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think with with boundaries, because of what happened at the last election, the Labour Party is not going to... You know, the DUP is not going to vote to shrink itself and increase the amount of Sinn Féin's representation. The Labour Party is not going to vote to shrink itself and increase the Conservative Party's representation. The Lib Dems are not going to vote to shrink themselves at the benefit to everyone else. And the SNP are not going to vote to shrink themselves. But I couldn't really not going to vote to shrink, shrink themselves... I mean, technically, uh, Caroline Lucas would also lose her seat, but I think you're kidding yourself if you think she wouldn't win the successor Brighton seat. Um, But seeing as no one is going to vote for that, the Conservatives can sit in the Telegraph being like, it's not fair, the other parties are bullying me. Or you can go, okay, we'll have a 650-seater arrangement. Oh, so they'd lose some of their own backbenches on it anyway because they'd lose their seats. Um... Yeah, so, oh, you know, we'd have a 650-seater commons, we'll have a new boundary reform, we'll do it on population, uh, not voters, but there'll be equalised boundary changes, which means then they get rid of the slight unfairness towards Labour, um, they don't get to add in their own unfairness by uh, cha- by making it so it's, it, you know, by changing how the boundaries are actually calculated, but it also means that every side does not go into the next election with a set of boundaries and at that point will be approaching 17 years old, which massively increases the chances of the election doing something quite weird and seeing as no one knows who benefits from something weird happening, it's in everyone's interests. But it is part of the kind of weirdness that I think the Conservatives were in a more um, receptive and interesting place in July 2017 than they were in December 2017. Yeah. And they start January 2018 in this kind of weird point of like, maybe if I just assert loudly uh, at, the, at the waiter, my order slash my majority will be brought to me. God damn it. Don't you know who I am? And it's like, well, guys, that's not how it works. What else did we miss over the Christmas break? Um, Andrew Adonis. Well, let's come back to Andrew Adonis after the break. 
So I think it's a kind of really interesting test case for what you kind of care about in politics. So I thought for a while that Andrew Donis was heading inexorably in the direction of men who Brexit has kind of got made them a bit Twitter pulpity, if you know what I mean, and was therefore to be kind of regarded with a certain degree of caution. Because I think it's really easy to get a popular cause like that and kind of get a constant feedback for saying things that are more and more extreme. And you kind of, and I think Twitter is particularly problematic for this is that people just really get like they, they get the sugar rush every time they say everything and, and brexit has created created quite a few big figures who will just say things for what i feel is an obvious kind of sugar rush of, of response so that aside i do think it's a surprise that he lasted as long as he did on the infrastructure commission i think it's a shame because he does know a lot about infrastructure and i think chris grayling is a terrible, 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 terrible cabinet minister who puts Tory party narrow interests, or just even the, the idea of Tory party being in charge of stuff and very narrow form of right-wing ideology over evidence base. Yeah, I'm saying so... Terrible. He was so terrible at prisons. I cannot even tell you about how terrible he was at prisons. And now he's terrible at transport. And the East Coast mainline is just a classic example of someone who who insists that their ideology is correct, even in the face of evidence that it's not, right? And that's what annoys me about it. Well, the, the problem with, with, with what happened with East Coast is that effectively you had the kind of classic problem of a, a bad bidding process where... So it's, it is not that private operators since the the state-operated uh, one that Labour set up after the financial crisis uh, stepped away have not made money. What they've done is they've come in and they've bid and one of them's gone, I can make a million pounds extra for the exchequer. And the second one's gone, well, I can make two million. And these numbers have just never been correct. Uh, the operator then needs to hand the money back to the exchequer anyway, which is why they um, they go uh, bust. There are, yeah, which is why they then have to pull out. There are a couple of problems with the bailout. Yeah, with the, with the fact with Stagecoach Virgin being able to pull out of the arrangement. The first is that the Treasury does include these, um, in my view, always farcical estimates about what they could get out of East Coast as a profitable line. And so it has implications for public spending across the piece. The second is that Stagecoach Virgin now paid out their 2017 dividend based on what their shares were doing when it looked like they had a contract that was going well. Um, so there are um, lots of unfairness issues and there are lots of problems with uh, that. It does reveal some problems with rail privatisation. It's just interesting because it doesn't actually reveal the problems that people think it reveals with railway privatisation. Okay, so here's a problem that I have and I don't know how to feel about it. I feel at the moment like Labour have got a lot of policies which are popular but not how I would spend the money and and I and I and it's one of those things where you kind of go I don't want to attack them for holding those policies because you have to have popular policies in order to get into power and I and I think that's a legitimate thing to do if you think overall you would be the best government. But hospital car park charges for example I think if you just made all hospital car parks free that would probably be abused a lot by people who work in the local area I, I'm just not sure it's, it's a sort of universal benefit I'm not entirely sure would actually work to make things better for the people you'd really want to to help for rather than having more slots for people who who have mobility issues for example so I mean I obviously start from the the strong prejudice that car ownership should be discouraged and punished wherever possible uh, so I'm not unsympathetic to the opposition to it as a policy, but it costs basically nothing, right? That is, I mean, that mm. is kind of the, it's sort of the, you know, the, one of the mistakes I think a lot of people make with 
policy making and indeed like the argument of like oh when it's nationalized will be this huge amount of profit and comes back it's like well the profits are huge in real terms but in terms of like government spending they're not that large i kind of think you might as well just go like yeah sure we'll we'll make um we'll make this parking free um but then i think that's the same issue i have with rail fare freezes right i do think that i think lots of people feel they pay a huge amount for rail transport it's a massive burden on their income i'm really sympathetic to the idea that generally incomes have been wages have been incredibly squeezed and actually people have particularly once you paid housing costs once you paid your food costs are now going up that's a problem but also that if you had some money to put into stuff you would put it into buses yeah i mean the the thing about labor's uh fair freeze right uh, is then actually i think people are overclaiming on it on both sides right so actually in terms of what Labour are saying they would do, which is hold it at CPI, um, which they will do solely with the proceeds from nationalisation, I don't really get where they're going to get any money to do that from from the second year. Because of John McDonald's infrastructure, yeah, spend fiscal, fiscal rule. rule, it's the really the only bit of rail that they have to account for. Everything else is just infrastructure spending. Uh, they have set themselves an artificial limit of 25 billion extra of infrastructure spending a year across uh, the piece. But under the rule, there is no reason why the infrastructure spend can't go to 30 billion, 40 billion, right? There is, you know, the, one of the good things about the rule, in my view, is it, it does separate out infrastructure from day-to-day spending, um, which, I mean, in a way, is a, is again why the... So my concern with the car parks policy is is I'm fine with existing car parks being free. I would be troubled if, uh, in five years' time, you know, you know, if, you're assuming you have a Labour government now, if in five years' time you have a situation where you are building more car parks... Uh, because I think we ought to be encouraging the you know the tapering abandonment over, of the, the abandonment car. of car parks. Well, it's just you know it's the least happy category of consumer is the motorist, right? They are much more likely to not enjoy the process of commuting to work than someone who commutes via train or bus or et cetera, et cetera. They are it, despite really? the I fact, didn't know yeah, that. despite the fact it is heavily subsidised. Yeah. It it costs an awful lot to the individual consumer. And it costs a lot to everyone in terms of, um, you know, dirty energy. Now, that last part may, may be fixed if the electric car does happen anytime soon. Um, The electric car may take longer than people think. I suspect the driverless car will take longer than people think. I just think that the... And so I think the problem with the rail nationalisation stuff, and I kind of want to then get back to Brexit uh, and the Conservatives after that, is that... Um, Labour has a very good idea what it is they want to do uh, to the railways. They want to bring the remainder of the network back into uh, public hands. However, they, and this was the problem of the Atlee government as well, right? Then um, one of the reasons why British Rail was a failure when the nationalised railways of the continent were mostly not is that um, British ministers never had any idea what they wanted to do with this railway that they owned. Um, and if you don't know what you want to do with a railway that you own, what tends to happen is you have low fares uh, and you don't invest in, in new capacity because that is the kind of the sort of default setting, right? The politically easy thing to do with a nationalised railway is just to... Run whatever you have, the current lines, subsidise the smaller lines that wouldn't work commercially. Because voters don't like change, right? Um yeah. And then eventually you end up with a situation where people don't use the uh, railway, which is what happened with beaching in the 60s. And now, and so I think the my big, you know, my, my big ask 
from you know the various uh, sympathetic transport think tanks and sort of the various lefty think tanks and the shadow transport team is to have a transport policy that moves beyond a very popular lever and starts to move towards well and the things we would like to do with our popular lever are xyz yeah i'd like that in housing policy too Imagine the idea of like actually someone going, this is what I want the country to look like in 2025. Um, yeah. Uh, now on to back on Brexit and the... No, let's not do... Come on, save me. Save me. Just give me one week off Brexit. Okay, fine. But, I, but so in that case, the other weird thing that we have, the meta thing we have not missed yeah. is the government's policy agenda or lack thereof. Still not really there. But I think you're, um, and you've written about this in your column, and I, I touched on it in, in mine as well, about the kind of the the kind of culture war baiting announcements being a sort of function of the fact that everyone assumes that Theresa May is, you know, is on her way out before the next election. And also that you have to, to some extent, not only run against her, but also run in the what I think of as the kind of Daily Mail primary, right? And there's all the Sun primary. There's quite a lot of that going on. And I think that's going to be a theme of the year. Yeah. And I think, um, so one of the lessons uh, of the 2017 electoral cycle is an election campaigns can matter and can change things. However, I think some conservatives have perhaps taken that lesson a little too closely to heart because there's very much a thing of like, oh yeah, at the moment we don't have an agenda at the moment, she's just letting these people do these weird culture wars. But, you know, when the new leader comes in 2021, you know, we know that things can turn around quickly. And it's just like, well, so Labour did successfully turn around a lot of uh, their negatives in the short campaign. However, they did that by fighting a very good campaign against a very, very bad campaign. Um, a large chunk of the Conservative Party hasn't, I think, grappled with the fact and I doubt they will be fighting as bad a Labour campaign as Labour fought a Tory campaign uh, this time around, right? And, you know, if Labour had done a slightly better job of dealing with some of its negatives early on, then its good campaign... Well, actually, I think its good campaign actually probably already got the best result it could have considering the 2015 result. But it's one of those things where just like, just because we now know that you can enter your short campaign in a bad state doesn't mean you should be relaxed about entering your short campaign in a bad state. It's a bit like, it's kind of like what happened in 2017 is for years everyone had been saying no team which is three goals down with 10 minutes to go can win. And then a team wins 4-3. And then like next year, a bunch of managers are like, oh, I've told my boys to score three own goals in the first minute. It's like, well, no, because most teams which go three goals down do in fact lose. And most governments without an agenda do, in fact, lose. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a, my thought for the year. That is a cheery thought for 2018. Send us your thoughts for 2018. And also, um, if you have anything you'd like to ask us, you can tweet us or you can uh, email us. I'm uh, helen.lewis at newstatesman.co.uk. You're stephen.bush at newstatesman.co.uk. And yep. also, if you are one of the remaining few humans on the planet who has not been bullied into signing up to Stephen's morning email, why not give yourself a New Year present and do that too? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not, as I said before, sign up for Stephen's morning call email. It's going to have a fresh new look and you want to be there at the ground floor. Music.